Hi, and welcome back to the History Machine podcast. This is our eighth episode on early Rome. I'm your host, Niall, and my co-host is... Cahill. Hello. So, Cahill, will you please explain exactly what the AI History Machine is and how it works? So the History Machine is an AI trained on database of historical battles to determine what should have happened, what odds should each general have had to win, what casualties should they have had, how likely was each commander to die or get captured, then compares this to what actually happened and gives each general a score based on how much better or worse they did than expectation. Another little point to make about the History Machine, this AI that we're using, it's trained on a database of information up to and including the year 0 AD. It mostly gives outputs in terms of tactical information based on who's doing what with what particular army composition and units and resources. So in a sense, it kind of says who was overhyped, who was underhyped, who over and underperformed in what situation. Right, so we're going to focus on this episode here, an early Rome. You kind of say to yourself, what do we really mean by early Rome? We're going to start with the foundation and the foundation of the myths and the legends, the very early point, the Romulus and the Ramus. The story goes that Romulus and Ramus, born to a woman named Rhea Silva, she was daughter of King Numitor from a small Latin town uh, called Alba Longa, and that's just south of Rome. The mother of these two twins claims that the father is Mars, so they're meant to be divine in the sense. So we're going to start seeing a little bit of common themes among other foundation myths, just like our episode on Darius and some of our earlier works. So along the line, what happens is a King Amelius, the uncle to their mother and the usurper of the throne from his brother, Numitor, will order these two twins to be thrown into a nearby river, conveniently the River Tiber, which is the river on Rome. Like these similar stories, the people who are meant to kill the babies don't want to kill the babies, so they leave them in a basket to die and the river floods. It turns out that the two boys survive and they're nursed by a she-wolf, the famous Roman art, and I just want to make a little bit of a side note about this as well. The lupa in Latin means wolf, but it could also be used to mean prostitute. So you can believe what version you will. But uh, along the line, these two boys then are eventually found by a shepherd. They're taken in and they're going to grow up to be young men. They're going to find their exiled grandfather, Numitor. They're going to help him put it back on the throne. And then after that's all done and dusted, they'll decide to head south and establish their own city. So that's one of many founding myths because Rome, which is meant to be founded in 753 BC, April 21st, really convenient in terms of the date is right down to, to the day. Uh, they've got a couple of other set up myths as well. One of them is that the Trojan hero Aeneas sails to Italy after the fall of Troy and establishes a city. Another one is that there is a fellow named Romus and he is meant to be the result of Odysseus's affair with a witch and he founds a city basically just off the coast of the island where Odysseus is meant to have had this affair and therefore that links Rome to Greece. But many, many foundation stories. But I'd like to come back a little bit to Romulus and Ramus and go a little bit further to explain a little bit more just about that history. It's important to understand this because this history is what the Romans believed and therefore it really influences a lot of their culture and their origins. So shortly after, Romulus and Ramus decide to set up their own city. They're going to go to an area that's populated with lots of hills near the River Tiber, and they're not 100% sure exactly where they want to build this. So Romulus thinks the Palatine Hill, mostly for defensive reasons, and Ramus thinks the Aventile Hill, and this is mostly for trade. This disagreement spirals, and then they decide to console the gods with some animal sacrifice and see who's right in what situation. 
So shortly after this, Ramus sees six vultures, and these are the birds of Mars, which is meant to be their father, flying over his hill. And upon this, he goes, oh, wow, this is a miracle. I better go and tell Romulus. So he goes over to Romulus's hill and explains that I've just seen six vultures fly over. And then Romulus, in this kind of coy way, goes, oh, wow, that's really incredible, because I've had 12 vultures fly over my head. And by the way, uh, bonus points, mine have also landed. Uh, therefore, that's an even bigger divine sign. So... <laughs> Make up the rules as you go along. So Romulus will accuse his brother Ramus of lying and then he'll argue, listen, the vultures flew over my hill first. That's more important because it's it's like, you know, it's it literally commenting in YouTube videos first. There you go. Yeah. You, you've done it. Um, and Ramus will argue that, listen, 12 is a bigger number than six. He's right. And he also gets bonus points for a stellar landing. So checkmate. That's, that's, that's all I got to do. So later, Romulus will build a trench at the foot of his Palatine Hill Ramus is going to see this, get furious, hop over the, the trench to confront Romulus, and in a bit of a scrap, Romulus kills Ramus. There is a quote attributed to this, and effectively it's used to kind of justify this murder later down the line, and it's, so perish anyone else who should leap over my walls, and it's attributed to Romulus. But uh, an interesting little side note I want to mention, we're going to leave the mythology in a moment, but um, that trench will also become the area known as the Roman Pomerium. And this is a barrier of ruined walls that was legally the boundaries of the city of Rome. And over the centuries, the Roman city would grow beyond these like trenches or walls and past the Palatine Hill. But the Pomerium would become this invisible barrier that was never to be crossed. And it was extremely ritualized and there were a couple of entries to get into it. Crossing the Pomerium was actually considered, as I said, a death penalty. In hindsight, this is actually attributed to justify Romulus's murder of his brother. He's like, you don't cross this wall or you get killed. That is your problem. I don't make the rules. I just think them up and write them down. That's a good example of like, you know, it may be mythology, but there are serious consequences if you ignored it. Yeah, if you, if you break it. With actually, I'm not going to say with more accuracy, this is with a lot of speculation and a little bit of information, but it's very, very likely that this doesn't really particularly happen, this kind of foundation. And these people are probably based off other people in history and some stories are made up and things are conveniently tied to to try and attribute X to Y and Y to Z. But it's very likely that Rome was effectively just a small city-state, maybe a couple of chieftains or tribes living on a group of hills together that eventually form some kind of coalition. And eventually, at some point, they have a little bit of a now we're a city or now we're a town or now we're a state. But it's never as good a story just saying it's on a very defensible hill next to a river you can trade on around good farmland (laughs) in an otherwise mountainous country. It's just not as romantic. So we've all of that aside, just to just to explain a little bit of the mythology. And um, after this, then there's meant to be seven kings of Rome, including Romulus. They are meant to rule these seven for 244 years, which averages about 35 years of reign, which is crazy long reigns, which insinuate that either these people lived a very long time or there's a lot of maybe sub rulers or less important people included in it. And it's it's really just their mythology rolling it up together. But after this time, around 500 BC, we're going to look at the point where Rome forms this republic. It it ousts its kings, it gets rid of them, and it decides to have a new form of government, which is kind of conveniently like 90% fully formed with rules, which would really insinuate that this was maybe an experiment down the line and there's a cutoff point and they go, there we go, it worked out well in the long run. Now we've got an interesting little Rome set up where we have kind of an oligarchy with some um, patrician rulers and plebeian others involved in it as well. And there's a complex government system. This is going to be subject to change and updates and, and 
different uh, variations and laws will be passed, laws will be changed, positions will be invented, positions will be removed, uh, different roles in the society will be will be added and removed over time. And it's very much along this now we're going to see that this small city-state that was probably used to just cattle raids and defending itself from small invaders, where it really decides to kick off is when they are sieged and when they are sacked by a Gallic Celtic, up for debate really, because they may have been related, according to Julius Caesar, to the Gauls he invades down the line. But it's the Battle of Alia where the Gauls defeat the Romans and they will sack the city. And this is going to be an absolutely massive upset to the Roman psyche because the Romans were kind of aggressive anyway to begin with. But this sack will make them really think, we do not want this thing to ever happen again. This is like just an army that came in, beat us and then did exactly what they wanted to do, sacked the city, stripped it of wealth. And really, Rome could have fallen apart at this time. It was it was a huge upset to them. They didn't really know what to do. It was kind of shocking and alarming. A little side note I want to include as well about this. This army of Celts or Gauls that came down south, they might have never even intended to have battle with Rome. It could literally have been a pit stop while they headed south if they were just some mercenary forces doing bigger jobs for Greek colonies further south. So, Cahal, we actually have some data on this battle and could you tell me what the history machine thinks of the Battle of Alia? The history machine actually, while I think maybe strategically this was a big upset, the history machine felt that given the circumstance of the battle, Celts were favoured to win this one. Oh, wow. It only gave, gave the general uh, 0.25 win over expectation for this, which translates to, you know, they had roughly 75% chance of winning in the history machine's view. However, they did deal a lot more damage than that was expected. Dealt out about 34 or 35% more casualties to the Romans than they would have expected yeah, while yeah. taking about what was expected themselves. So, um, yeah, this was not good defensively on the Romans' part. Um, they... They took a heavy, mm. heavy hit in this one, which in that way was certainly an upset. Yeah, yeah. It was it was a very bad loss on on home turf really as well. So which is something not necessarily factored in by the history machine that this is the area that they should have known how to defend. Yes, yeah, so they would have had home field advantage and knowledge of the terrain. Uh, but probably just caught a little bit by surprise and unavailable to do what they needed to do. But there's a lot about this, and it, it does seem to be that there's a little bit of mismanagement. They're possibly just outclassed. They're not really able to deal with the situation, and they're in a bad situation altogether where they find themselves in an awkward, just a really awkward loss and, a, and an upsetting loss, and one that potentially could have finished them. This could have nipped the Rome in the bud right here should the sacking have been more fierce. And it's, it's something that they kind of realised that the destiny of the Roman people was really up to what these Gallic people decided to do or not do. And that was probably a, a, an even scarier prospect. Yeah. An existential crisis could appear over the hills and just wipe them out. And that really interfered with their psyche. I suppose that sense of maybe kind of helplessness and potentially you know, being vulnerable to these people is summarised in the famous quote, um, allegedly by the Celtic general Brennus, of they victus or woe to the vanquished as uh, <laughs> when deciding you know how much tribute the romans had to give the celts just you know decided to keep using heavier weights to get more gold and the romans were like well that's not fair and celts were like hey life's not fair deal with it like <laughs> 
Um, I'm going to talk a teeny bit about just early Rome in general and the kind of influences that they were affected by. So around this time, the Romans would have been adopting the phalanx. If you listen to our Greek episode, you would know really extensively what we were talking about when we mentioned a phalanx. But in a quick summary, it's effectively a formation with overlapping shields that you carry a shield on your left hand and you have a spear on your right hand. And it would form a single line that would be extensively long and it would be almost unbeatable in its time. Unsurprisingly, spread like wildfire, so it moves across from Greece and other regions. The Romans adopt it as well as their main form of uh, infantry warfare. Now, the edges of the phalanx, the sides, the very ends of those lines are quite vulnerable. And that's traditionally where you'd place your cavalry. So it's a very, very straightforward layout for their army. They've got a little bit of manpower. They've got um, a lot of organization. They've got decent weapons. And they're able to form actually a quite robust and useful military at this time which enables them to kind of deal with their neighbors soundly and and effectively so they're kind of starting with a little bit of a an advantage over areas around them but eventually rome is going to expand they want to expand a little bit further they're they're now a proper city state they now have a certain amount of territory and if they want italy or parts of italy at least are now within our grasp and how do we attain it and how do we go further so we're going to talk a bit about the first samnite war a little story about it. There was a city called Capua and it was at war with the Samnites. But Capua is a rich city in terms of its land and its output and its agricultural yield and its general resources, but they're not great when it comes to military affairs. They were at war with the Samnites and they decided we're going to appeal to Rome for assistance. Rome kind of goes, no, we're not going to do this because we recently signed a like a non-aggression treaty with the Samnites. If we go to war against them, we've just kind of broken that and it's an awkward situation. Now, Capua is absolutely desperate for Rome's assistance. So they propose, you know, it's better to be under you than it is to be under the Samnites. So how about we become your vassals? You just get Capua and then we're part of Rome and then there's no longer a Capio. And if there's no longer a Capio, the Samnites can't be at war with a state that doesn't exist anymore. And they can't be at war with you because you've like a non-aggression pact. So it's kind of a win. I was going to say a win-win for both of us, but not exactly quite a win-win. But it's definitely a situation where Capio is like, well, it's better to be with Rome than it is to be with the Samnites. Now, Rome looks at this and goes, wow, that's actually like such a good deal. I can't say no. So they accept it. Now, the Samnites get really annoyed because they're like this little vassal relationship that you set up is a convenient way that we're about to take over this region and territory and you just kind of sign it away to this group and they're like hey technically don't invade there because that's rome and rome is cool so <laughs> um, it really annoys the samnites and now we're going to get to kick off for the first samnite war a person to mention here just a particular commander who makes a name for himself who actually gets his surname from a situation where he's called out by a barbarian warrior and takes him on in kind of a single combat named after a raven, Corvus. We're looking at Marcus Valerius Corvus. So, Carl, is there anything that particularly makes him special? I suppose one thing to point out here, but I think is a point we need to make about this period in Rome's history, is that all of his stats you first of all have to take with a bit of a grain of salt because we only have two battles in the database for him. Now, this kind of undermines the stats that we have, but that in itself is worth bringing up. We have very few real standout generals here, um, 
And I think that's just interesting in itself, because I suppose a lot of this podcast, we're focusing in on big historical names. It's very much kind of great man theory of history. Yeah, like our Alexander the Great. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas this kind of goes against that, and it's just showing Rome in this period had lots of just successful, competent generals who had the resources, mm-hmm. and Rome just took calculated risks with them, slowly expanded over time. And uh, yeah. in the case that they did have an upset after a while, then they were able to just throw in more men after it. Mm. However, Corvus is one that has at least two battles rather than just one on the database, and he did do a good job, uh, according to the History Machine, with this. His wins over expectation is 0.6, which puts him... Very high. Mm. Again, you know, only two battles, it's hard to say, but that's very, very... That's certainly a promising start for anyone to uh, get that kind of result out of their opening two battles. And uh, his casualties sustained, bit high. It's uh, almost 10% higher than you'd expect, but the casualties dealt out by him is about 45% higher. Yeah, so he's losing a little bit more men than you think a general should lose around this era, but he's dealing out a lot more casualties than a general would be expected to of this era as well. Okay, that's pretty impressive. So I think uh, as your earlier point, Cahal, and we can almost go back to it just a tiny bit, but it really does show that this Republican system, this idea of we don't have a king, we have a bunch of people scrambling to be in charge from a couple of fairly well-to-do families, that the cream seems to rise to the top, that we get some pretty good people in charge of powerful positions. And now... You know, the cream and the scum rise to the top. So <laughs> yeah. it's a case of sometimes you get you get the bad with the good. But I think the bad are weeded out. Yeah. yeah. The, I mean, the Roman Republic, it's something that can be romanticized and idealized a bit too much. Because in reality, it was still kind of, in a way, it was really more an oligarchy than a true republic in a lot of ways. You know, you did have a few powerful families controlling most things. But it still created more competition than what you had in the typical monarchy. And I think that really did create... A lot more consistency and kind of better performers. You had more people getting into high positions because they had earned it in some way or another. Even if it was ruthlessness, they at least had the intelligence to yeah. you know, to be shrewd. They weren't just some guy's son. If you wanted, you could actually look at Rome at this time as like an almost like a startup company in a small marketplace trying to get its share of work. Where can I go next? And what are my competitors? And how do I get involved in this? You know, what are my strengths and weaknesses and opportunities? And... As you said, Cahill, really, they're surrounded by similar competitors. This is like a, you know, the small pond where we're going to figure out who's going to be the big fish and who's who's going to be like the frog that eats the rest of the tadpoles, who's going to be the one who, you know, gets to come out of here and actually become a f- particularly formidable force because it's just as likely that other areas gotten the upper hand might have done something very similar to the Romans. But it is the Roman character here and um, the certain amount of the, the location that they're positioned and their their general attitude and maybe a bit of that aftermath of the psychology of the, the sack of Rome by the, the Celts of what do we do next and we better start expanding further and make sure that we're, you know, that we don't have an enemy at our borders and that we can we can go further and there's a bit of a buffer zone. A lot of retaliate first. I think that's the, the key thing that, that that changed with them from that Celtic sack was that they just, they wanted to make damn sure that they would not be hit unawares again. Yeah, definitely. So at this point, the first Samnite War is over. Rome is victorious. Yay, yay. And we've got 10 years of relative peace. And I say relative peace because Rome is still expanding throughout Italy and conquering smaller and smaller territories. But they're like, yeah, that's peace. It's not full scale war. It's just regular peace. You know, don't worry about it. So they're slowly expanding outwards and gaining more and more resources. 
But after 10 years from the first Samnite War, we're going to have the trigger for the second Samnite War. So Rome looks around Italy and kind of says, you know what, like this place is, it's a nice peninsula. And I reckon I probably have a mixture of manpower and resources and political connections and, you know, allies and yeah, I could probably conquer this thing. But you know who's the real big threat here? If I can get over this hill, and the Samnites had a lot of hills, but if I can get over this hill, I probably could take most of Italy. So let's try the Samnites again. So Rome adopts a policy of like, let's just poke the Samnites with a stick. We're going to do bits and bobs. We're going to put colonies around them into territory that's belonged to the Samnites. And then the idea is if they don't react, we've got a colony there. If they do, we can declare war. So we can kind of just, just really, um, you know, standing outside of a nightclub looking to pick a fight kind of a thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, we're going we're gonna to do something and, and see what happens. So they're really, really trying to provoke this war. So when it does kick off, Rome has a lot of small skirmishes and a lot of little wins. Then the mid-game of the Samnite War, they get a lot of big losses. And suddenly this provocation is like, we probably shouldn't have done that. <laughs> <laughs> so... The biggest, or possibly one of the biggest upsets, has to be the Battle of Caudine Forks. The Romans have an army. They get horrendously outmaneuvered in terms of what can we do? Like, these guys are surrounding us. They, they're moving their army left and right and everything. We're in a bad situation. We get bottled up and we're completely surrounded. And they surrender because it's a real, real super embarrassment. And it's explained later just by a combination of like poor leadership and the idea that they're, you know, the phalanx is a slow, movable unit. They can't really, really move around with it. And um, the Samnite leader at the time finds himself in this really unique position. He's like, I've got a Roman <laughs> army completely surrounded and I can do whatever I want with it. So the leader, who's called Gaius Pontus, kind of goes, what can I do? And I think actually I'll consult my dad. So he asks his father, what should he do in this situation? His father sends him two letters and one of them says, um, with this surrendered Roman army, you let them all go. And the second message said something like, um, uh, actually, no, kill them all. And then he was thinking, is my dad okay? <laughs> like, is he, has he gone senile? And he calls for his father for a conversation just to see, is he is he mentally sound? And can, you know, what advice actually should he go for? And his father explains, those are the two options you really have. You can either choose to let them all go and have this great favor with Rome and say, listen, you know, if we find ourselves in this situation somewhere down the line, we can always point to this battle and say, hey, listen, we let you all go. Everyone got to go home. There was no ransom. It was all perfect. Or you absolutely kill everybody. So Gaius's father explains, these are your two options. Don't do anything else. But Gaius Pontus decides, I'm going to do something else. So he, he decides, I'll try and do the best of both worlds. So he lets the Romans go, but only under the condition that they pass under the yoke, which means that there's going to be an arch of weapons and the Roman soldiers are going to have to kind of dip their heads and walk underneath it. And it's kind of like a walk of shame. And to us, we kind of go, that's not the worst thing. You know, you still get to go home, but it's a real pride ego-crushing situation for people in the ancient world. Ret retrospectively, though, he definitely should have been more ruthless given what Rome would go on to do. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's cool and all, and it is, yeah, you know, yeah. it's, a, it's a great story, but um, yes. like many great compromises, it just ended up not getting great results long-term. Yeah, definitely. Fair enough. Well, we know what you would have done, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think the Battle of the Codine Forks, though, it is one of the weirdest looking battles in the history machine going through the going through the stats because it had this as a 50-50 battle. It had it, it what the history machine expected would be, you know, on average, both sides should lose about 11% of their men. Okay. And instead, it was just this big outmaneuvering thing and no one died. No one got hurt. Everyone was fine. So the history machine is just kind of, you know, come on, someone do something seems to be kind of the attitude here. It's just a, it's a very, it's a very unique looking battle in the database. Yes, yeah, we we do have a couple of battles like this in the in the database where there's a straight up surrender and the history machine kind of goes, well, that was strange. I thought somebody was going to kill somebody, but they didn't. So, I don't know. It doesn't really factor in maybe diplomatic negotiations. So <laughs> it just kind of goes, oh, you really wasted your opportunity there. You could have killed some people. Oh, okay. So, um. Yeah, the Romans kind of return and they get really ticked off about this because it's like, oh no, our pride, we've had to swallow it. But along the way, during the Second Samnite War, the Romans with their phalanx system, which is popular in Greece and has proven to be quite effective, they realise that this is no longer useful. Now, we have covered what I'm going to talk about next in our episode on the Punic Wars and the kind of layout and structure of the Romans at this time and how they effectively battle in what's called the maniple formation. But if you have enough units that have, let's say, projectile weapons or enough cavalry, you can just harass a phalanx for a long enough time. And unfortunately for the Romans, the Samnites here have a lot of projectile-based units. They have this maniple system already, or a variation of it, and they've got a bit of cavalry. And the terrain, which is going to be the biggest issue with the phalanx here, is very hilly, very unsuitable for this rigid close-knit formation. So the maniple is going to form in this in this uh, situation. Maniple literally means like a handful. So it's often described as a phalanx with a hinge. And it's meant to be a much more adaptable phalanx where these soldiers can now be, they can be deployed in a small subsection if they need to do, like you need to hold a bridge, you need to go over here, you need to burn down those houses, you need to do something. The army is kind of like Lego blocks now. We can pull pieces out and it still functions the way it intends to. Also, the phalanx, which is not actually useful for rugged, rocky terrain with foothills or woods or anything like that in its way, it prefers this wide open flat plain the Romans are going to drop it like like a hot potato and say, listen, it's not working for us. And you got to give credit to the Romans. They've done this. They do this a few times in their history. If something is not working, they drop it and they move on. And they're going to drop the phalanx system and they're going to fully adopt this maniple system. And they're going to now have three lines instead of one. So they effectively, they adopt this huge, absolute, you know, overturn of what kind of units they're going to use, how the army is structured, what's it involved with. Uh, you know, how it's how it's going to particularly function. So they drop the phalanx system because it's not working, but they decide to immediately adapt this new one and they're going to keep it for quite some time and it's going to suit them for the rest of their campaigns throughout Italy and as far up as the Punic Wars as well. Um, it's going to be particularly useful, but it's just, you got to give some credit to the Romans. When something is not working, they're not nostalgic about it. They will drop it and they will move on. Can't say the same about some of the political stuff they do. Like, they keep a lot of rituals and a lot of ideas along the way. But when it comes to military affairs, if it didn't work, they just they just remove it and they replace it with something else. And that applies to generals too. Uh, yes. Which is, again, kind of another benefit of, like, you're not necessarily worried about, you know, insulting the royal family or something. It's just, like, you know, you, you have a lot of people gunning for certain positions. 
Mm-hmm. They're they're ready to take the spot. It's not a total meritocracy, but it is closer to one than many of their contemporaries. Mm-hmm. Another important side note I'll just mention, because it was done at this time, the Romans built the Appian Way, which is a major road, and it's a great logistical achievement because it effectively allows them to keep an army going and and resupply them over a longer distance more effectively and efficiently. There's a saying effectively that amateurs think of tactics for battle and the real professionals think of the logistics. So if we want to conquer the Mediterranean, if we want to conquer the even just the Italian peninsula, we got to really figure out how do we feed, clothe and equip men who are going to be traveling across the country. And the Appian Way, we just got to mention it. It's a major road, great achievement. So we'll take a small look here just to tie up the end of the Second Samnite War with the Battle of Bovianium. So History Machine feels that at this point the Romans had begun begun to get the upper hand and seeing it's their new, you know, army setup, which was a radical departure and kind of the next evolutionary stage, it gave them a good chance of winning this, about 75% chance to win. Uh, what it didn't expect was just how comprehensively, because while their own casualties were pretty much to expectation, they dealt out just a little bit under 60% more casualties than expected okay, to the okay. Samnites. So this was a crushing defeat for them, and this pretty mm-hmm. much ended the war. And this is why, you know, I was saying maybe they shouldn't have picked that weird, you know, walk of shame option. They were <laughs> their options to, yeah. to win before. People remember that. <laughs> you know, maybe they could have made nice and kind of patched things up, found some coexistence. Maybe they could have destroyed them and... You weakened Rome so that they couldn't bounce back. Instead, they just picked to really annoy them and make sure that they remained their enemy forever. Yeah, yeah. We now have the wrap-up, effectively, of the Second Samnite War. Rome, as a total, controls quite a bit of Italy. It's really established its gains. It's got a lot of connections, a lot of allies. It's had a bit of back and forth with the other Latins and the Etruscans, and it's, it's hit this critical tipping point if you're the big enough bully in the schoolyard everybody else might decide to gang up against you and that's probably a nice little summary of the third samnite war because it's not really just the samnites the romans are fighting it's everybody it's like no we're going to be taking on the samnites with a combination of their allies and the etruscans and some celts are thrown in there as well but it's just going to be a couple a quick successive wins from the romans and they're going to quickly establish that listen we're solidifying what we control in Italy, and now we're the dominant power in this area. Yeah, it's definitely the case of the coalition would have worked if it was in place just a, a little bit earlier. But now yes. it's it's already too it's late. It's too late. Yeah, yeah. We've we've crossed we've crossed the tipping point. There is nowhere we can kind of really go from here. It is now effectively Italy under Roman control, and there's just a couple of battles to go through in terms of the stats and the figures. It's not particularly important. At this point now, the Romans are kind of the favourites to win, which is unusual because before this, we were flipping a lot of coins. So I suppose there are lots of engagements in the Third War, but one that we kind of have to mention, this is one where Rome really, really, really battles well and it kind of pulls its weight and just shocks its opponent, the Battle of Sentium. And this is going to be a decisive battle and a pretty spectacular win where they're going to overcome this coalition of Samnites, Etruscans, uh, Umbrians, and even the Celtic Gauls. Yeah, so this one, again, it's it's kind of, you know, been accused later on of uh, being massively exaggerated, but it does seem like there were huge numbers on each side. 
Romans claim a strength of 40,000 and probably something similar for the coalition against them. History Machine had it about 50-50 anyway. But this was crazy casualty. I think this is far enough. And we have a lot of battles in our database for this period of time. Even though we don't have many specific generals, there are a lot of battles because Rome was just slowly but steadily expanding outwards. Yes. The Romans never dealt out casualties like this. 72% more casualties dealt out oh, than expected. Wow. This wasn't the battle that ended the war. However, it is what broke the coalition. After this happened, the Gauls were just like, we're going home. Um, <laughs> don't care. We're, you know. Yeah, yeah. Not our problem Taking anymore. the horse back to France. We're going back. <laughs> but just like, we're, we're out of it. We're out of here now. Um, it's estimated that the coalition had about 25,000 people killed and another 8,000 captured, which is probably about three, four times more than what the Romans took. So, uh, yeah, yeah this was brutal. this was not a, a loss that they were going to bounce back from. Definitely, yeah. The Third Samnite War is effectively over. Rome finds itself in control of most of Italy, but they can control all of Italy if they want. But who are left, really? And the people who are left are a couple of kind of Greek colonies. Now, we never really touched on these people before, but it turns out that some Greeks did colonize parts of Italy, particularly southern Italy. And they would have had a huge amount of cultural influence with the rest of the Latins. They would uh, have a certain amount of connection with the old homeland Greece. But generally, the Greeks, like the Athenians, the Spartans, the Macedonians, though we wouldn't really classify the Macedonians as Greek, they're almost their own thing. But they wouldn't really have had too much autonomy or control over what I'm going to call these Italian Greeks because they're a little bit far away. And the last time that um, the homeland Greeks decided to participate in Italy was the Athenian invasion of Sicily, which went absolutely so terrible, it possibly cost the Athenians the Peloponnesian War. You can hear a little bit more about that on, on the previous episode. But yeah, that was... it. Was, it they, they kind of wanted to stay away from that area, really. There was a little bit of rule of thumb of like, let's not get totally involved with this anymore. But you know what? The Greeks do their own thing. They, if they're not fighting with themselves, they're invading Persia. And uh, around this time, or a bit before it, we're going to have the really famous, absolutely glorious conqueror, Alexander the Great, is going to be kicking ass and taking names as he goes over and wrecks the Persian joint and um, eventually dies doesn't leave a proper successor and the area around there is going to form three superpowers we're going to have the Seleucids we're going to have the Ptolemaic Egypt and we're going to have the remnants of the Macedonians left over now in this environment around this area we're going to have a very special person and his name is Pyrrhus of Papyrus his story is he was exiled when he was young along with his father. He forms an alliance with the Ptolemaic Egypt. He gets himself back in control of his kingdom. And he looks around and kind of says, I'm a small fish. I'm a small fish in a quite a big pond. But if I cross the Adriatic Sea and just go across to Italy, there's a huge area here that's ripe for conquest, that's got a little bit of Greek influence, that, according to my sources, is just loaded with barbarians. And uh, we could have pretty much, guys, a soft win and uh, expand and form our own little empire right here and there. So, Fierce of Papyrus decides, I'm going to get my troops. We're going to load up. We're going to take a couple of war elephants. So, they're back in battles and back in databases here. And we're going to head over to Italy. And we're going to start making names for ourselves. And we're going to start conquering territories. And we're going to make a brand new, like, 
new Alexander the Great, Alexander goes west. This is what we're going to do. Now, um, Pyrrhus is actually like a second cousin of Alexander. Uh, they're like a generation or two removed. But it's it's a situation of he has a direct blood tie to him. So we're going to get an Alexander-esque person, get a Greek army of very heavy in terms of the phalanxes, and it's going to bring over a couple of elephants as well. And we're going to go over and we're going to see what we can do in Italy. So, Cahill, let's talk a bit about Virus because we're going to mention a few of his battles and he's going to have like phrases named after him. He's going to be like really influential just in terms of uh, historical events. But he is almost like the first super challenge that early Rome is going to have. So Pyrrhus, he's an interesting one, and I'm sure many listeners might recognize the name or think that that sounds familiar, and that is, of course, because his name is how we came up with the term Aphiric Victory, which means you won, but you took so much damage yourself in winning that, really, strategically, it's a loss. And Mm -hmm. this is, I think he's a perfect example, and it's something that's come up a few times before with some of the things that the history machine does and does not account for, because the history machine feels that his casualties sustained over expectation is almost exactly what you would expect. Okay. Um, That's not to say he didn't get a lot of casualties. Mm -hmm. What it is saying, basically, is that he was a solid tactician, but not a good strategist. He took battles probably that he shouldn't have. The invasion may have not been a good idea. Um, Mm -hmm. He did, you know, his wins over expectation is very good. It's... um, you know, thirty. It's point three three. So yes. You know, very solid considering that he had five battles and you know one three drew drew one. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's very good wins over expectation given those circumstances. Casualties dealt over expectation eighteen percent higher than expected, which is solid. But you know, and casualties like on paper he looks very solid. But then you look at the numbers behind it and you realize like this is the limitation of measuring versus expectation. Because what the history machine expected was a pretty bloody battle on both sides. Okay. Pyrrhus is quite interesting because he's going to go and try and deal with the Romans. And he thinks at this point that they're kind of an uncoordinated, barbaric group of people who aren't really affected by Greek culture, who don't have proper logistics, who, you know, don't really have great battle tactics and strategy and, and, uh, you know, not great planning. So he's like, this is going to be a soft lunch so we'll look at his very first battle with the italians he's going to have great phalanx and he importantly he's going to have elephants here which the romans are going to have to deal with and this is the first time they've ever had to deal with elephants which actually will spook their horses and will cause huge problems but they're going to have to try and find a way to work around it but Carl, let's talk about the very first battle here Let's look at the Battle of Heraclea. So the Battle of Heraclea, I think, is a perfect example of what I was just talking about with uh, Pyrrhus, because yes. this one, it had him as the underdog. I didn't think he was going to win this. Uh, he gets uh, 0.75 wins over expectation for this battle. He took even slightly fewer casualties than expected, uh, maybe mm-hmm. about 4% less. He dealt out 11% more casualties than expected. On paper, everything looking very good. But then you look into the numbers, and as I said, it expected Rome to win this. So the casualties it expected on both sides weren't the same. Mm -hmm. In the end, really, Pierce, he did take roughly the same number of casualties as the Romans. But the Romans could afford it. At this stage, they are big enough that they can throw more men at the problem if they do have have a loss. 
Pierce is here with his army. He's not going to get big reinforcements or anything. Yes. And he lost maybe between anywhere between maybe a tenth and a third of his of the of the army in this battle. Oh wow. Um and those just aren't losses that he can afford to be taking if he's gonna yes, try and capture yes. Italy. Yeah. Now I want to mention just as a bit of a side note about the Romans at this time. Italy has quite a huge access to manpower and because of the political dealings with the Romans and its allies and its um its connections, they're able to levy troops from their allies and be able to get, you know, young fighting men well equipped and fairly uniform and bring them into the legions and have them as backup. So Rome now has enough manpower that it can afford a mistake, can afford a loss here, can afford a loss there, because it can literally recruit more and more manpower. Now, this number might be shockingly high, but the Romans at this time may have been able to pull together as much as 500,000 men over a couple of years in terms of manpower and resources. This is from, you know, probably going as far as teenagers and old men. But it's the idea that they can afford to lose these battles and they can just pull men after men and resource after resource from ally after ally, provided that these allies don't leave them and that they stay somewhat loyal to Rome. They're able to churn out a lot of manpower. So these kind of casualties you're talking about, Cahal, they're like, taken a third of uh, more losses than you should yeah it was it was nothing for rome this was maybe like a hundredth of everything that they could throw out theoretically yeah but yeah. logarithmic scale now in the difference of what they can afford to take and you know we we, we had the previous episode for example on hannibal mm-hmm. i mean the key to hannibal was that he he didn't lose many he had this tiny army and he kept the you know obviously he lost lots of them crossing the alps and everything but he really valued them. He didn't lose men in silly battles like this one. He wouldn't yes. take a battle unless he had to or unless he really had a good plan to win it. Yeah. Now, even at this point, uh, Pyrrhus is thinking to himself, this is meant to be an easy lunch and I'm finding these guys to actually be highly organised, well-structured, great logistics and are able to like pull men out of stone. This is ridiculous and we're going to have a bit of a problem. So the campaign is started off well in terms of the, uh, the amount of it's a good win. But he's got to have a good win over and over and over again. And it's literally, you know, people might give out about like wave after wave and hordes of, of barbarians come over the hills. But we could really accuse the Romans of the same here. But a mixture of competent leadership, great logistics and organization, and then just the the total, you know, the big bank account to be able to make those kind of entrepreneurial ventures and mistakes in terms of military campaigns. Like, they can learn from their mistakes here and still keep coming back. We're going to look at the second battle here we have of Pyrrhus against the Romans. He's going to perform particularly well here now, but this is the Battle of Asculium. And, Carl, let's go into some of the stats. And again, it's it's pretty... It's very similar, uh, remarkably similar uh, stats for this one. Again, it had him as the underdog. It thought, overall, this was a good win. Didn't expect him to win. Yeah, he gave 0.64 wins over expectation for this one, which is, you know, very good. Mm -hmm. Took slightly fewer casualties than expected, 3% fewer. Dealt out more casualties than expected, you know, 8% higher. So again, on paper, that looks fine. But once you look at the context... What he needs is a knockout blow against Rome. And he's taking out 6,000 men out of, you know, 40,000 this battle. And Rome has many more armies they can draw from. 
Uh, whereas he still has his army of about 40,000. And even though he didn't lose as many here, he only lost about 3,500. He still can't afford those losses. This led to a very famous quote by Pyrrhus himself, allegedly, which was, if we are victorious in one more battle with the Romans, we shall be utterly ruined. And that just sums up the situation. Like he hasn't found, he needs to be able to knock them out. And he just, he's not coming close to doing so. And even, yeah, he's technically winning, but like, you know, he, he just, he's going to be just totally worn out, you know, by the friction of going to war with Rome. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Now, um, as crazy as this is, and it is still a win for Ferris, and as, as we consider, this is where we coined the term a Ferric victory, but the history machine wouldn't think that this was as bad of a loss in terms of what you expect to happen as it should, in a sense of it was like, what did you expect? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. You did good given the circumstances, but these aren't the circumstances you should find yourself in. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Now, already at this point, the Romans are trying to adapt to the elephants and they're actually going to introduce like anti-elephant wagons, uh, <laughs> which are like, like chariots and, you know, they're going to have bowmen and, and um, uh, actually just putting, trying to set elephants on fire. They're just like, we're going to deal with these elephants because last time they gave us a huge problem. And it's already a situation where like these terror animals that he's brought over to Italy to wreak havoc and they have wreaked havoc the Romans are already going well we we can afford maybe a dozen battles here but we better learn as quickly as we can from them so battle one is over battle two we're going to try some immediate anti-elephant tactics and go from there and at this point as well it, it's Ferris is looking at this and going like uh like as you said the Ferric victory the idea of a couple of more wins like this and it's over for me it's they're already adapting and we're now frustratingly bogged down in terms of what do I have to do to conquer Italy because I'm winning but I'm I'm not gaining anything from these wins it's huge strategic losses but but big tactical wins so where can we go from here this isn't really following the normal rules of conquest um, so he's going to have one more battle with the Romans and funny enough we're going to see now that Romans are learning and learning and adapting and pulling together more and more manpower and getting their stuff together and really going to show Pyrrhus a hard time and get him out of here so let's look at the battle of Beneventum so this battle yeah it was just it was just kind of a mess um, a, a bit messy okay. everywhere <laughs> the history machine's opinion on this is that the Romans should have won it a bit cleaner because at this stage, Pyrrhus was so worn out. They didn't, it was kind of, you know, roughly a draw tactically, but it was enough anyway to send Pyrrhus home. Casualties sustained on both sides. It was about what was expected, which isn't to say there were few of them, but both were, you know, maybe within 5% of the expected values. Given the circumstances, did well, but... Yeah, he shouldn't have found himself in these circumstances. He 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 messed up this campaign pretty badly, and following on from this, he would elect to leave Italy. So basically, he had two wins and a draw, and lost the war. Um, you know, with with information in our database, it's it's a very strange looking thing. But the information we fed to our computer, we're basically saying like, this is Ferris. He won two of the these two battles. He drew this one, and with all that, he lost. So it's, it's trying to work them out in a small sense. Yeah. Um, so I know there's a lot of speculation. And um, as you said, Carl, if we even had a couple of generations earlier, he, he could have steamrolled potentially the Romans. Yeah. And 
that is one of the biggest speculations because if we look and there is a big hypothetical what if alexander the great invaded rome around this time how well would he have done and if we look at the pure tactical information and the data we have on them, Alexander is one of our highest ranking. There is nobody here in this Roman Republic of this era who is anywhere near the calibre of an Alexander the Great. But what they have going for them is the sheer will to win and the manpower to back it up and the organisation and logistics to do it. So it's really a question of at what point does Alexander hit the Romans at? If he hits them around now, this almost... Alexander Light, this uh, relative of his who comes along later and has the advantage of an Alexander level army with elephants attached, tacked onto it, um, has trouble. He wins, but he has trouble like trying to, you know, effectively get the Romans to surrender and they, they refuse to negotiate with him. And he, he can win, but he has no proper actual gains. And it's just an expensive messy conquest that eventually has to just be abandoned for those reasons but i think and maybe we're kind of speculating a bit here now because we're looking at it from a, a purely kind of strategic or overall high level look at it that if alexander came over around this time would he have suffered very similarly from the same idea the same the same levels of maybe attrition or not being able to afford any casualties could he have given the romans a run for for their money would he have been enough to to overtake them uh, could he have maybe, you know, had the, the foresight to tear apart their Latin allies and maybe tear apart Rome internally as well as externally? It's all really speculation. But if we do look at just our solid stats of like, would Alexander win in a battle at this time? The answer is a straight up yes. But the question is, could he win 10 battles in a row and then decide, well, the Romans still haven't given up and I'm running out of money and resources and men? You know, it's it's what's the point do you decide, do you want to go home? You can still win all of these battles, but you may or may not win the war. So we're going to kind of wrap up a little bit here because the next step in the Roman history is the Punic Wars, which we've covered. And later down the line, there's going to be much bigger names like Caesar and so on. But it really wanted to put a little bit of focus and information on the early Romans. So for the end of this episode, normally we do a nice little top five on who we reckon the best commanders are here based on the information that the history machine turns out. But we're at an unusual position where we literally have so many names for so many people who have so few battles. We've got this nice standard Roman consistent uh, leadership and there's only actually one standout person at the moment, one person who would reach our category and our standard of commanding enough troops over enough battles by himself for enough amount of time to actually meet the category for how we would rate these people. And unfortunately, it's it's just kind of a mixture of small commanders from a republic system where everyone is trying to play king of the castle to be in charge. We don't get enough data on enough people, but... What we can say is they're all consistently good in what they deliver. And it's it's almost a reflection of the Roman system at this time and later where they have excellent level of like officers and people are well capable and able to do what they do. But our number one for this episode, surprisingly, the person who something is named after, which kind of means like you might as well have lost victory, but coming in at number one is Pyrrhus of Epirus. Five battles, three wins, one draw, one loss. Wins over expectation is 0.33, which is good. The other stats, pretty close to average, reasonably good. I think the real point of this episode is that we now have 
a rebuttal if anyone accuses us of leaning too far into the great man theory of history. Because if anything, we've just seen Rome, they just slotted in generals. They had a system that worked. They had, after a while, enough resources that they could fill in and substitute in men and money and resources on, you know, so if they had a slip up, they could just, they could come back, bounce back from it. Definitely. And what you had was just, Mm -hmm. it was a system that was very adaptable. They were in a good position in the middle of Italy. They took lots of just sensible, calculated risks. They didn't try and expand too quickly. They didn't rest on their laurels. They always had a bit of an edge to them that kept them pushing outwards, but never bit off more than they could chew. If we look through, and we do have a huge number of battles, even though we don't have big name generals, and I'm looking through the list, I don't think there is a single example. There are a good few 50-50 battles, but I don't think there is a single one uh, in our database where the Romans were really the underdogs, which is very interesting. And it just says a lot about how they just had a system that worked very well. They had an attitude which enabled lots of generals to have success, but you know, they were certainly competent, but it wasn't necessarily that they were this outstanding figure in history. They were just doing a job they had been trained to do. Mm. So we look at the old Republic, we can kind of say, listen, it's filled with a lot of very competent people doing a lot of fairly good work at one time, steadily expanding and promoting the interests of effectively the Roman Republic. Meanwhile, they get their first taste of a great man of history scenario, a great leader coming over from Greece, gives them a hard time, but just can't quite solidify. Yeah, and you know, it's a perfect example because you have this guy who is set up in the mold of like the great figure, the great tactician, and he's just hitting the brick wall of like their infrastructure is better than mine. (laughs) And you know, their their logistics are better than mine. Their supply is better. So just, yeah, he just runs out of steam. Mm -hmm. I was going to mention just a couple of little small things about Pyrrhus before we fully drop and let this episode go. He decides in frustration to retreat from Italy. He gets involved in some Sicilian campaigns. He is eventually named king of of, uh, Sicily for a while. He retreats back to Greece and he gets involved in not a nice battle in Argos where reportedly he dies in... (sighs) Reportedly he dies by getting a stray slate from a rooftop thrown at him by an owled lady (laughs) and it hits him in the head and he dies (laughs) so (laughs) it's a very anticlimactic finish of like i went to italy i wanted to do some stuff it didn't quite work out i went to sicily i wanted to do some stuff you just have this great setup of like this relative of alexander's coming in with his invading force and then just kind of doesn't quite get it done no wanders away yeah dies in a really embarrassing way um just kind of, yeah, just fizzles out. Is just, mm-hmm. yeah. So for our next episode, we're actually going to focus on a timeline in Rome that is known quite a bit if people are little fans of history. But if you're not, these are two names you really should know and look up because they're kind of fantastic. So after this, we have the Punic Wars, which we've covered. But after the Punic Wars, we're going to be introduced to two fellows who are almost this combination of the infrastructure, the manpower, the logistics, the ability, the everything, but are also two just standout phenomenal men. And we're going to look at Marius and Sulla. And we're going to look at these two people in depth because we've got a lot of information on them. We've got a lot of information on their time, a lot of records. So we're going to look at the people who influenced Julius Caesar, the people who gave them the blueprint for how to do it 
how to effectively become a dictator for life. And also to give a spoiler, our next episode will feature the number one general from our database thus far. Can't wait to actually go into in-depth into, into what it involves and how it's going to work. So thanks very much for listening to the current one. And we hope it's given you a little bit of a foundation in early Rome and some information into why exactly some small area that covered a couple of hills in a city in Italy are able to expand and control the peninsula in such a short period of time and leave their mark on history and expand from there. So thanks very much for your time. Thanks again for listening. I've been Niall and my co-host is... Cahill. Goodbye. (laughs) So thanks again.